We'll be turning in the scriptures to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Church, here we are again in Romans chapter 1. We are in the second half of Romans chapter 1, continuing our sermon series through this incredible uh, book, best letter, greatest letter ever written, uh, as John Piper has called it. Uh, And it's full, and it's rich, and it's thick, and this morning we want to give it attention. Now this August, we are in a little mini-series in the second half of Romans 1, and a four-part mini-series considering God's wrath on unrighteousness, God, the wrath of God revealed as we saw it last week. Last week, I made the point that the people about whom the second half of Romans chapter 1 is written are Gentiles. This is what, they're, uh, what really is being held out to us in what we just read. By Gentiles, what we mean is those who... Uh, not who have the order of nature by which they discern what the Scripture calls the invisible attributes of God. Namely, it says, right, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Now, I've often heard people sort of trying to reflect on Romans 1, talk about the things that can be known from God from nature, but we don't have to try to talk about the things that can be known about God from nature. It tells us, right? It tells us that we can know his eternal power and his divine nature, these two specific invisible attributes. And then uh, we spent time at the end of July on Psalm 19, which really holds out this same sort of idea, the glory of God revealed in the heavens. So there's a specific aspect of nature that I I think Romans is grabbing Psalm 19 and pulling it in for reflection, that in reflection upon the heavenly places, that the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars, we can see the eternal power and divine nature of our God. Now, these are the Gentiles. What they have received by way of God's revelation in nature. Now, by the time we get to chapter 2, we will introduce another way to know the truth about God, that is our conscience. We know what is right and wrong. And we prove that we know what is right and wrong because of the way that we judge others. 
Right? For me, the, the, the clearest example that has been with me almost my entire life is the, the inner sense that we know that cutting is wrong. You know? Like I'm standing in the, in the lunch line in elementary school, youngest ages, and I knew, you're cutting, teacher. He's cutting, right? We know it. That, that's stealing. You're stealing my place. And our, our conscience knows that others are doing wrong, and yet the kid who cut didn't seem to notice it at all. But if I cut in front of him, oh, would his conscience know and approve that there is something broken, right? The, the clear measure by which we are judged is the very measure by which we would condemn others. This is the argument of the revelation of God through our conscience that is entered into in Romans chapter 2. So the point of the second half of Romans 1 and the first half of Romans 2 is that the Gentiles, even those who have not received the law of God, that only have the revelation of the sky above and the conscience inside, even these are without excuse. That's the point. They've failed to live lives in accordance with the little bit that they do know about God. So the argument is not, oh, look at all the great things they can know about the God. The argument is they can know a little bit, just a little bit. And look what they do with that little bit that they do know. They stand condemned by even the bit that they know. So then in the second half of Romans chapter two, Paul begins to make an argument that the Jews who have God's gracious revelation in the law are also without excuse. So we have the Gentiles who are without excuse because they have the revelation of the sky above, the heavens, and they have the revelation of God through their conscience. We also have the Jews who have the revelation of God in his law. They also are are without excuse because they know explicitly how to live by revelation, divine revelation of God's word and the commandments. And yet they also don't follow the way of the Lord that's revealed in the law. The point is this. The Gentiles have some knowledge of truth about God, and yet they become idolaters. Explicitly, that's what it says. And the Jews have some knowledge of the truth about God, and yet they have become lawbreakers. Both have proved themselves to be condemned by the suppression of the truth that has been made known to them. So the question for us here is, what about us? What about the people in this room? Well, it turns out you have both the testimony of the heavens above, and you have the testimony of the scriptures, including the law. And we also are prone to both, aren't we? To both idolatry and to disobedience. So we also, Jew or Gentile or whatever in the world you want to call whoever's in this room, we are all rightly condemned. But even more, we have been given the revelation of God the Son. The revelation of God the Son, Jesus Christ, we have more than the stars that bear witness to, uh, to, to God and more than the law that gives witness to the, God's nature. As, as, as James pointed out, it's more than just a, a set of laws, but a revelation of the very character of God. We have the image of the invisible God. And in Jesus, we have the gospel of God. 
And yet so many times, even with this threefold witness, the heaven above and the law and the gospel, so many remain not merely idolatrous, not merely lawless, but also, and this is the point, faithless. It's the point of Romans, faithless. That's the issue with us today, faith. Will we lay down our own will Will we lay down our own desires, the lusts of our hearts, as the Scripture puts it, to hope in the Lord alone for his glory, for his way, and by his grace? This is the message for us. This is the concern that we who have the truth are in a dangerous position. What's the danger? Well, that we too would also suppress the truth, like all who have gone before us. Today, we see what that looks like in a greater depth and detail. We have a danger, the suppression of the truth. God, I thank you today for your grace, that you have made yourself known. We know your power. We know your divinity. We know your way. We know your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would again by your word and spirit, shine these things before us that we would see that would become clear and known to us, but also, God, that you would be gracious to grant the gift of faith, that we would believe that your way is good, that we would believe that your righteousness is righteous, Lord, that we would trust in the hope of your grace, Thank you, Lord, for the testimony, not only of the law, but also of the sacrifices by which the Jews might be saved, that they they looked forward to hope for your provision, and by which we also are saved in that final sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we would participate with all who have gone before, not only in the confession of our own suppression of the truth, but also in the confession of our hope, in your grace, through faith. Pray that you would build this. I also ask, Lord, specifically, that you would give us an awareness of the fallen human condition in which we participate apart from Christ. The fallen reality of our culture and society that is all around us and affects us so greatly that we would have an awareness of what it means to be a fallen human and discover again what it means to be created and submitted to the creator. Thank you, Lord. We pray this and we ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give attention to this this passage. This morning, we're going to give attention to two particular verses, verses 24 and 25, all right? So keep those in front of you. You can see the words as we work our way through verses 24 and 25. It begins with this phrase, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now in this, we see really two main ideas then on We see the idea that God gave them 
up. God gave them up. And they, God gave them up because they exchanged. And so let's look at these two ideas. What does it mean that God gave them up? And what is the nature of that exchange? First, God gave them up. Last week's passage, verse 18, began with the words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. When what we have this morning is a further explanation of the, the form in which that wrath came. Like, I hear that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it, yeah, it does seem like that's the case. There's, a, there's a, a, a presence of the reality of God's anger with the world, with the way that we are in this fallen world. God's displeasure with our sin. This seems to be evident, but what does it actually look like? What's the scripture speaking of? And he gives us a good glimpse of that in this passage. It says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up. There are two things that I want to say before we look at a couple subpoints here. The first is God is active in this judgment. It says that God gave them up. There is a, a, an action on the part of God toward idolatrous mankind. God isn't simply in a back seat while mankind lives on in their godlessness and then checks in every once in a while to see how that's going. God is actively handing these idolaters over to their idolatry. Okay? And that's why it's the, the wrath of God is not, you know, can be observed. No. It's the wrath of God is revealed. All right? There's something that God is doing. That's the first thing. And second, God did not create the condition of their judgment. God is doing something, but he is not creating the condition of their judgment. While God is active in judgment, God is not responsible for their sin, their idolatrousness, or the lustful condition in which they find themselves. God is giving them up to the lusts that are already active and present in their hearts. There is a reality of an idolatrousness among this people. They are lustful in their hearts. And God is giving them over to the full vent of that idolatry. It's the same order in verses 18 through 23. God's wrath is revealed because of man's ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed in the context of sin and idolatry. The Lord is not responsible for their sin. Sinners are responsible for their sin. But the Lord is not passive in his response and in his wrath and in his giving them up. And this is where we find ourselves today. God giving them up to the, the lusts of their hearts. Now that word lusts is, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you a Greek word just for fun. All right? The word lusts there is epithumia. Uh, the epithumia is not merely a, a, uh, a, a typical desire. All right? It is an epa, or you might, you might use the word epicenter. What are we talking about? Oh, the very great center, Right? Epithumia isn't just a desire, it is an inordinate desire, a 
lust. It is what the heart is set doggedly upon. God is giving them over to the full vent of the epicenter of their desires. I think that this has at least two implications for us just right off the bat. This is instructive to the believer. Notice that this is an act of God's wrathful judgment that he would give mankind over to the lusts of their hearts. That if God would give a people up to their sin, God is essentially giving them up to hell. Do you get that? The wrath of God is revealed right here in this moment. It's like hell on earth. And what's it look like? Well, to have all of your lusts. To, 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 to be given the very center, have at the center and epicenter of your thought life, your desires. That's hell on earth. So surely, believer, it is an act of mercy and grace when God interrupts our lives and does not give us what we want. Perhaps in that moment, believer, that is God's grace, not to give you hell on earth, but to give you his very presence, his action, not in wrath, but in grace. It is a grace from heaven that God is transforming our desires. And the second implication is it's the opposite for the world. I mean, isn't the whole point of so much of what we see around us in commercials, entertainment, Hollywood, and the arts, so much of modern parenting and even an education system is oriented around following our hearts and letting ourselves be ourselves? I mean, isn't that like the philosophy that undergirds so much of the world. Friends, that's not good. That's not love. That's not kindness. Again, that's hell on earth. It's slavery to the lusts of our flesh. The purpose of culture, it's a word. It means something. It's related to the word cultivate, right? Well, when I think of the word cultivate, I immediately go to a garden, And a garden that experiences culture or is cultivated is not left on its own to pursue its own desires. What does that look like? It looks like it's overgrown with weeds and becomes inhabitable for men and beasts with thorns and thistles. This is the human heart. It becomes inhabitable for man and beast. We become inhabitable, uninhabitable, when we are left to our own desires. The business of culture is not to teach you to follow your own heart. And it's not to to create conditions in which you can freely give vent to all of your lusts. We are supposed to be cultivating a way of life which brings about transformation called maturity, not perpetual immaturity. Unfettered epithumia, unfettered lusts of the heart, is precisely this. It is a perpetual immaturity so that you do not become a man or a woman. You do not grow up into a full humanity. The opposite is really Disney's let it go. I know I've used that illustration before. It's, it's too easy to make. 
when you let it go, when you give full vent to all the desires that you've been keeping all up inside, do you notice what happened behind that princess when she left that city? Disaster. Everything was frozen. She was alone. This is what happens when we give full vent to our desires. There is devastation left in the wake of a fit of freedom. This isn't what we need. The scripture calls this something. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. They were impure. Another word for the word impure here, it's perhaps even in a translation you have in front of you, is the word unclean. They were impure prior to God's wrath and giving them over. They desired ungodliness and unrighteousness. Here it's called impurity. This is the word that often is used throughout Scripture to indicate that which is unclean, that which is unfit for the presence of God. Now, humanity is made for the presence of God, made for a garden in which they dwelled with him. But to become unclean is to become unfit for our very purpose in nature. What is considered unfit for the presence of God is also unfit for the life of man. The state of impurity is a state that requires intervention to become human again, to become clean and fit for satisfaction in our God. In the New Testament, this word is often used in reference to something particular, Impurity is most often in the New Testament related to sexual immorality. That is, the lusts of their hearts were for sexual immorality. This becomes very clear in the coming verses. We'll look at it more closely. But let's just say that this is not uncommon in the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. The Apostle Paul, speaking about Corinth and their sin, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented, that have not changed, have not experienced a sorrow over sin and a pleading with God to bring about transformation of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. You see, it's all bundled together. So much of the issue of idolatry in Corinth that Paul addresses in his letters is regarding sexual sin. Colossians 3, 5, and it links this so powerfully. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So there's something in you. There's a lust, there's a desire that is in you that needs to be put to death, and it says explicitly what it is, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Here the scripture again connects impurity with passion and desire, and it connects impurity with the wrath of God revealed. I don't think this is by accident. I think there's something that ought to tutor us about the nature of ourselves in our sinfulness and our particular need for God. And our particular need for God regarding impurity, uncleanness, that which is not the right ordering of our sexual desire. It continues. It says it pretty explicitly. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts in their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies 
among themselves. And that's kindness. Those are good words. If we'll listen to them and not just get irate that God told us what to do, you know, if we just listen, it's the dishonoring of their bodies. Mankind failed to honor God as God. That's how it says it in that, that previous paragraph. But in doing so, they're suppressing reality. God is God. He's the maker. He knows. Now, may they, they may think that they elevate themselves. If they don't honor God as God, then hey, <laughs> looks like there's a vacancy, right? And mankind gets to, to, to elevate themselves and, and set themselves up as God. That, and so they give vent to their sexual desires. And they think that they're becoming more than what they are. But this isn't the order of creation. God is still God. They may not honor him as God, but he is still God. And so when we give vent to the lusts of our hearts, we don't become more, we become less. They dishonor their very own bodies. It's not that they dishonor somebody else's body. Dishonor their own body. Our bodies are given bodies. We did not make them ourselves. Our bodies are given to be received as a gift with all of the instructions that come with them. And yet, with the lusts of our hearts, we dishonor our bodies. Again, in a fallen world that that which is natural to man is not necessarily that which is good in a fallen world. Our lusts, our desires, our, our deepest wants, they need to be cultivated. They need to be transformed. We need the active intervention of the Lord, not in wrath, but in grace. The grace that brings transformation from the inside out. Really, I hope that you've already made the connection. I hope that you've seen this. We'll, we'll look at this more in future weeks. But 50 years ago, our own culture, our own nation, and much of the West experienced something. It has a name. It's called the sexual revolution. And the whole, the whole ordering of the structures of society changed. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from the human heart. And it wasn't that this is the first time that somebody's desired to do something that God calls impure and that actually dishonors the body. That's not new. That's not something that came about in the 60s in America or on college campuses. That's not new at all. But there was a free venting and expression of that old, old sinful desire that we experienced. And are we not today experiencing not a new thing, but the outworking, a full venting of desires that were loosed 50 years ago? Last week I mentioned that perhaps the, the, the idea is not to go back to something. Friends, there's nothing to go back to. There's only a God to look to, to cultivate my heart in the hearts of those around us. Now, all of this is, therefore, God gave them up to these things. Why did he give them up to these things? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, what's happening in this passage so far? So far, just to recap again, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Mankind has suppressed the truth that is plain 
to them. Mankind has become fools, exchanging the glory of God for images. This is what the Apostle Paul has described so far. So God has therefore given them over to the lusts of their hearts. This is the desire of your heart. Have the full vent of the desire of your heart with no withholding. And this is called an exchange. I would call it the great exchange. We know. We know better. And our hearts have something that is yet longing for so much of our created, our non-fallen created nature that there is a God and we are under him and he's given us a way to walk and to live. And in this we have meaning. This week I was listening to The World and Everything in It by World News and and there was an interview in the midst of it in which this mother-daughter team, and I think this just happened like two days ago or something, this mother and daughter do a one-a trip to the edge of the atmosphere. I'm thinking, is that winning? (laughs) You know, I guess for some of you, that's really exciting. For me, I'm like, you go, boy, you know. But they won a trip to the edge of the atmosphere, and they would literally be able to float in this craft for a little while, this mother-daughter duo. The daughter, 18 years old, Anastasia Myers, will accompany her, her, her mother to this edge of space experience. And she says this, every I think every time I look at the stars, it almost feels like I have a place in the universe. It reminds me that like everything happens for a reason. Nothing happens without consequences. And those consequences lead to whatever destined future you have. Man, like Romans 1, Psalm 19, I have a place in the universe, she says. That's right. You belong to creation. You are a created thing among created things, many of which are higher than you. Perhaps there is power. Everything happens for a reason. It just seems like when you look at the stars and when you come to the edge of them and you haven't even left earth, You look around and you say, there is a divine order. There is an order to the spheres that proclaims to us in our disordered, crazy, anxious life in which we can win trips to the edge of the atmosphere. The stars don't care. They just keep moving in their place. There is a divine order. And nothing happens without consequences. Yes, there is an order. And the wrath of God is revealed. There are consequences for actions. But this isn't how we live day to day. Every once in a while, we come a little closer to the stars and we see a glimpse of the divine power and and the, the, the eternal power and the divine nature of our God. And we start to see a little clearly and then we hop back into life and we trade the truth for a lie. There is something that is known about what is known, and we suppress what is known. But this passage tells us why we suppress it. Why do we know something and then act like we don't know it? Well, because of the lusts of our hearts. We are more than mind creatures. We're more than logic in a body. 
We're lust creatures. We're desire creatures. And so, with that disordered lust, with that disordered desire in light of the fall, we deny the truth. Specifically, it tells us, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God. Well, what's being suppressed? Well, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature is what's being suppressed in this passage. We want something else so that we can deny the truth about God. We want something else, and so we deny that there is an eternal power. We deny that there is a divine nature. Idolatry is the way that we carve out in the world a little space to ignore reality. Idolatry is a vacuum in which we try to to create a little space to push out reality and live in a world of mere fantasy. And in that little fantasy land, what do we do? Well, we give vent to the fullness of our lusts. It's not real. It's a lie. But at least we get to do what we want for a little while. You know what that's like? You know some of the sin that you are prone to. You know the lusts of your heart. And you know that if you really lived your life in full vent of them, your life would be destroyed. But you do them anyway. You just carve out little spaces where you get to do them for a little while. And even that little space destroys the edges. That's idolatry. You're literally setting up a little space, a vacuum for idolatry in your life. And it destroys the soul. Praise God he has not given us over. That his grace is still here to to reorder that desire. He tells us what they're really rejecting. As it continues, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. I love the apostle Paul. He just can't, can't not interrupt himself. He's gotta worship. He's gotta declare the glorious truth. The book of James gives us a powerful look at the outworking of this desire. James says this in chapter four, verse two. And I would encourage, write this down in the margin of your Bible for reflection this week. James chapter four, verse two. You desire and do not have. So you desire, but you don't have the object of your desire. So what do you do? Well, you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. And so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, the wrath of God revealed. There's something fascinating in here. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. Rather, we give full vent to our desires, full vent to our lusts in a world in which we imagine there is no eternal power. There is no divine nature to hear the the difficulty that's going on in my messed up heart. It's a world in which we do not look to God, our maker. What would we ask? God, I have a desire. I have a lust in my heart. It is not satisfied, I'm angry. 
and I'm, and I'm fitful. Do you have anything here that satisfies? Is there any reorientation that needs to take place, Lord God of eternal power and divine nature that can right this ship? We do not have because we act like there's no God to worship, to cry out to, to serve. I want to really close our time with a, a bit of reflection on, on something terribly practical. Tim Keller has, has written on this subject so helpfully in recent decades. Tim Keller says, idolatry creates Super desires, that epithumia, super desires, burnout level, over the top, uncontrollable desires, inordinate desires, the sort of desires that are over the top desires that would murder somebody if you can't have it. And you know, I don't know if you've murdered somebody. I mean, let me know if you have and we can talk about that, you know. Um, but you know what it is where you could. inordinate rage over the top desires. Keller breaks these desires into three categories. I find this so helpful because I identify so freely with all three, and yet the scriptures say it's out of these three that, you know, like murder takes place. The first, he breaks them into future, past, and present. Anxiety, he says, is idolatry mapped onto the future. Man, that works. Idolatry, anxiety is idolatry mapped onto the future. Anxiety becomes pathologically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite things. I'm not going to read the whole quote because it's so simple. If there is some created thing in the future that must be, the more I need that created thing in my future, the more I have what? Anxiety. Fear. And I, and I orient the whole of my life becomes like in orbit around my anxiety because I need this created thing. I need the circumstance. A man, the things that we will do in our anxiety. Guilt is idolatry mapped on the past. Guilt becomes pathologically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite things. He gives this example, and I think it's helpful. Suppose I value a happy family. Therefore, my performance as a parent is valuable above everything else. Then, if my daughter goes wrong and has great problems, I am not just sorrowful or grieved. I am stricken with neurotic guilt. Because I need my family to be right. And I am the eternal power by which I can rightly order my home. I'm worshiping the creature, the created thing. And so anger and bitterness 
rise up, and, and it rises up particularly in the moment. He says this anger becomes pathologically intensified when someone or something stands beyond, between me and something that is my ultimate value in the present. In this moment, I do not have, and so what do I do? What do you do when you don't have? Fit and rage, sulk and cold shoulder, anger and bitterness. You know, one of the places that I've seen this most clearly is in a little child eating a cookie. All right, I mean, you, look for this if you haven't seen it before. Right, what does a kid, kid want more than just about anything else? A cookie, you know? I, I, I want a cookie right now. And, and so the kid gets a cookie, and the kid is literally chewing the cookie to the point to where that cookie has become mush in his mouth, all right? He has, in the past, satisfied his desire, chewing it. And what's the kid see? With cookie in his mouth, another cookie. Because every single kid has a a disordered desire for cookies or something like it. And I've literally seen many times that kid with a cookie already becoming mush in the mouth begin to cry and scream so uncontrollably the cookie starts literally leaking like you're losing what you desired because you're angry, because you don't have what you desire. Friends, we dishonor our bodies. That's gross. I mean, if you go ahead and think about that for a minute, the kid literally with cookie dripping, it's gross. It's dishonorable. And what's it come from? A lust of the heart. You and I look like that. That's happening to our bodies. With, when we have full vent to our passions. Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. See, that sounds very often to me like a problem. God wants to change me. Sounds like a lot of work. God wants to make me holy. Well, you know. But after reflecting today, I'm thinking... The one with eternal power and with a divine nature has set himself to my sanctification, to cultivate this garden. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Sounds so restrictive. That each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and and honor not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, but you do know God. You do. And you know his will for sanctification. And you, people of faith, have known the effects of his sanctification. What if we, in our fitting and in our raging, in our disordered desires, said, God, You have given me this parallel desire to cry out to you. Sanctify me. Anxiety, guilt, and anger. These are the outworking and fruit of idolatry. They are idolatry. Anger, guilt, anxiety, 
All of these begin with the root of lust and desire, the root of a sinful heart, a disordered hope. Look at verse 16. Right at the beginning of it is the cure. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's not anxious or guilty or angry because he's not ashamed. He has a rightly ordered hope in the power of God for salvation, it says, to everyone who believes. Salvation, it turns out, is the fruit of faith. It's the solemn of a man not turned in on himself to say, what would satisfy you, lustful heart? What desire inside of you have you not explored? Have you had oppressed within you by your parents or your culture or your social position? No. Rather than looking in, this man looks up, turns out in hope to God. To live in the truth is to live in worship and service to a maker, an outside will, not slavery to our own lusts. In this way, it's possible only by faith in the gospel, faith that Jesus has taken guilt and he's taken shame on the cross and granted righteousness. Do you believe that he's granted righteousness? For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not the wrath of God on our sinful, ingrown nature, but rather the righteousness of God is revealed and granted you in Christ. Do you believe it? What if our hearts were oriented, where anxiety and guilt and anger are the outworking of our lusts? What's the opposite? What is a life freed for anxiety and guilt and anger? It's shalom, church. It's the very thing that God has promised. It's peace. It's rest. Um, when, I, when I hear words, I don't normally hear definitions. Like I don't, I don't go to dictionaries in, in my brain. Maybe you do. That's okay. I, I like see images of things. And, and, and anger and anxiety have, it's like a porcupine. It's got sharp, narrow, deadly edges to it. You know the image that I see when I hear shalom? I think of like the rounded shape of a horizon. It's expansive. And it feels like I could live there. This is the gift of our God. Man, how sweet that in Christ we can live in the garden with him again. Heavenly Father, how sweet of a gift and promise is peace with our God. I have lusts of my heart right now that are at war within me. We'll get there in Romans. But Lord, you are the eternal power, not my heart. You are the divine nature, not me, not my culture, not my society, not my family. No, you are. And so today, I pray that for this church and for all who are gathered, 
you would situate us in your gospel, in your shalom, your peace, that on that sweet horizon we can explore a new, rightly ordered, sanctified desire because of your justifying grace, your righteousness, not ours. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, faith to believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.